Hello, and welcome to Art Matters at Home, a new arts and culture podcast from Philips. I'm your host, Arnold Lehman. After a half century in the art world, mostly as a museum director in Baltimore and Brooklyn, and five years at Philips as senior advisor, which means someone who is old, knows a lot of people, and isn't shy about voicing opinions, hosting an interview series like this seems like a perfect fit for me. So for each episode, like today's, I'll be at my desk having a socially distanced, at-home conversation with friends from around the world, artists, dealers, museum directors and curators, collectors and critics, to learn from them how and what they are doing and what is on their minds today and for tomorrow. So let's get started with our conversation with my friend, artist, and graffiti legend, Lee Quinones. I would say these days, if you had to pick someone who represents in the incredible work that he did, the whole period from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, up to, to today, in terms of evolving uh, street art and graffiti art, graffiti art into um, today's world, um, I think you couldn't find a more significant, important, and delightful candidate than Lee Quinones, who, after all that, still looks so incredibly young. And um, I think he's still doing that by climbing up the sides of outdoor staircases and spray painting the eighth floor of buildings that you can't even get near. Um, are you still doing that, Lee? <laughs> not quite, not quite. I am the world's, I am the world's oldest uh, teenager, so. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I wish I could claim that. The, uh, no, it's almost much better to be considered a teenager than an adolescent. Right. Um, right. A teenager, um, I think, has the, the sense of being active, energetic, you know, the hell with the world around us, invincible. An adolescent, which sometimes I'm called, uh, <laughs> is, is not quite as good. But so as a teenager, uh, tell me what you're up to. What's going on right now? Wow. Well, thank you very much, for, first and foremost, for having me. I'm very honored to be here having a good chat and yak with you, as I call it. Well, it's my, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Honored to be here. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, I have a lot of wheels turning uh, everywhere, especially in my studio and I have a makeshift studio here in Michigan. Uh, every time I visit here, my mother-in-law's house is rather vast uh, compared to New York standards. And, uh, you know, I have a small studio downstairs in the basement where I set up shop and I bring smaller works, drawings. So I'm working on a couple of those um, and also writing my book. Um, very, uh, you know, every now and then when in between the kids, and cooking and going out to shop for food. I'm, uh, you know, just putting, jotting a few words, a few mem- memories, uh, doing that. And just, uh, you know, having meetings on the phone with people for ongoing projects or upcoming projects in the near future. And, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, quite a number of things. They'll come to me if they go. <laughs> that I have to say, that sounds like you're very busy and uh, um, having uh, kids around that uh, um, you're responsible for a good part of the day uh, takes a lot of uh, a lot of energy. So I'm glad you're a teenager. Um, the let me ask a question because you're doing your book, which is uh, a kind of a memoir. Uh, it is a memoir of your life and your career. Uh, something I can't wait to read uh, because there must be so many stories that have never come to light. Um, but I wanted to ask since. Since you figure so, so importantly in that whole almost 30-year period before we moved into the new century, um, what's, your, what's your strongest memory of that time? If it's running from the cops, you know, don't say that. <laughs> but, but um, I mean, you had a hand in that movement, which at the time many people consider vandalism and today is considered so important uh, as an evolutionary style, um, both in and of itself, but where it's gone today. But I'd love to know what, what are your strongest memories from that period? I would have to say single-handedly um, the very next morning after I delivered the very first full handball court masterpiece. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, It was, it's famously known as the Howard the Duck mural Uh, was the day, the, the day that I actually remember talking to myself and saying I had arrived as an artist. Because you have to remember, you know, four years before that, when I started painting trains, I was just part of this huge, what I call alphabet soup of uh, a very young movement, the subway painters. And uh, there was a lot of confusion, but yet a lot of direction. And my direction was to bring it to the next level. And the handball court mural, which subsequently uh, influenced uh, people like Keith Haring and Kenny Scharf, uh, you know, was one of those moments of achievement for me. And I felt that it was a way of me turning the page of history, of my own history, and really exercising, well, exorcising this feeling of I'm just another, you know, kid on the block. You know, we were young people, but we knew what we were doing for the most part. Um, and I always wanted to point the arrow in the direction of a conversation, a new conversation. Um, maybe not truly, uh, just in the arts, but something that this is, uh, taking a whole new step in history. And I felt so proud of myself when one, I painted that wall without permission. So it was done in the dead of night in the same spirit of the subways. But as I as I said, running from the police, running from the police. It kept me in good shape. In fact, I had, <laughs> I had a sprint, a sprint race with my son, my 12 year old son earlier today. He beat me once and I beat him once. So I still oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> Lee, what year? Tell me what what year? I know the court, of course. It's one of the most famous single works of art 
um, produced that whole period. What was it? Was 1980, 79? 1978. 1978. So even earlier than I remembered. Um, wow. And it was, you know, that wall was single-handedly um, responsible for bringing um, what I would say a few forces together out of the woodwork um, to create the first international graffiti exposition in Rome, Italy, the very next year in 1979. So that's a very pivotal, important part of uh, my achievements. And uh, I'll never forget it. It's like yesterday. Wow. So tell me what happened to that handball court, ultimately. Well, uh, the wall is still there. Um, the wall was highly respected for a good number of years, almost over a decade and a half. It was still there. Um, very well respected within the graffiti community and the board of ed just were very happy to have it, to host it. Um, then eventually when I stopped, um, you know, visiting the wall every couple of years just to retouch it up and, kind of like, you know, painting the faded colors because it was always what I call sunny side up. The sun was always on it. So it destroyed a lot of the reds and oranges. So I had to always go back and re-trigger the mural. Um, then it just faded away into obscurity. And uh, so the wall is still there. And funny enough, Martin Wong, the painter, a uh, very dear friend of ours, as, as you know, um, wanted to ingeniously acquire the wall from the board of ed in the city of New York um, with what monies and which ways logistics. I don't know, but it was <laughs> real, real serious intent. Well, Martin, Martin had his, uh, his special uh, talents. Let yes, me say he did. <laughs> he did. He did. And uh, the wall is still there. And I've been kind of hinting on, on a few um, ideas uh, not for any commemorative year, even though 1978, I mean, I'm not doing the math in front right now, but, um, you know, I'm not really concerned about a commemorative year, but I'm really concerned about recreating the mural again, revolving uh, with, a, with a block party revolving around it with world-renowned DJs to help raise money for the Henry Street Settlement, which is right up the block. Oh, I know. I know. They're extremely excited about that. So. Sounds like a great idea uh, to me. And it's only uh, a couple of years, um, if I'm figuring correctly, um, 78, 88, 98, 108. Oh, my God. Yeah. 18. Um, so you're looking at closing in on 45 years um, of that being there. Uh, that's pretty, uh, and I'm going to use the word monumental, um, mm. for a project like that. It certainly deserves that kind of recognition. And I hope I'm still mobile enough, uh, to come and dance to those DJs. Um, I'll certainly be there. Um, I, I want to go to one other thing for which you're certainly so well known. And that is, and something that I remember so vividly, is um, subway cars in New York City during that period. I mean, if you didn't live or work in New York City 
at that time, you have no idea of the experience um, that you had by this kind of immersive, um, immersive travel form. I mean, you were no longer in a subway car. You were in the middle of a, of a, a multiply dimension painting. Um, and I know some people were horrified and irate and, uh, but I remember thinking this is the coolest thing and the most amazing thing I imagined um, happening. But if you take a couple minutes, um, how did that actually get done? Did you go to the, 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 the yards? Did you do it just late at night on cars that went back and forth? Um, speaking of avoiding the cops, <laughs> I can't imagine how, what kind of episodes that probably brought on. Yeah, well, it was like uh, uh, what I would call uh, kind of entrenched warfare at that time because you had to be very uh, pragmatic. You had to be very calculating. Um, you had to be street smart, but yet subterranean. You know, and, you know, so, uh, it was, it was a whole, it was an interesting environment because, uh, the trains pretty much at night became a whole other theater, uh, for people that were going out for the nightlife of New York. And for the most part, a lot of them were very desolate. So they're very strange characters, uh, mobilizing in the subway system at that time. So it was a very quiet environment, but yet very eerie, uh, austere, austere environment. And, um, uh, to paint a whole car, it would take anywhere from, you know, it would take anywhere from six to 12 hours. And sometimes if it was a really detailed, uh, very complicated piece, um, composing it, uh, within a weekend's time, a whole weekend when the train is parked in the yards was the norm. But you know, well, I mean, they told, they told, in a way, if we're bringing it up to the present, it's like so many of those um, those elaborate tattoos that people tell, that go around their whole bodies that tell a story. Because those um, those railroad cars weren't haphazardly painted; they were they were telling a story. Oh yeah, it was a moving storyboard for sure. Um, it was a uh, sort of like watching a moving picture uh, go by you. And what was really beautiful about, like, what I was really in love with, I mean, I'm sort of like the, the classic uh, Mark Twain novel in the city, you know, the <laughs> Tom Sawyer and, you know, and the Mississippi River, right? With me, it was or the boy and his dog and the boy with his trains. And the trains, as in that, you know, they they are an inanimate objects that people just, you know, just look at as objects of society, objects of capitalism, getting people and took and took for granted every day. And took for granted every day, and those things had a soul of their own, and uh, it was uh, it was a very magical time to really uh, not only look within yourself as a young man. Uh, painting and wanting to have a voice in a very loud city as New York is, uh, where identities are totally lost 
and maybe even abstracted in some way. It was a way of reconstructing your life. And part of that for me was while I was in those tunnels, uh, those trains meant a lot to me. They were my carriers. They were my carrying pigeons. And they carried the message that I sort of rehearsed in my head or felt in my, in my heart to actually, um, you know, um, uh, express on the side of those cars. Not in the fashion of the p- typical graffiti writer where they're very much, um, uh, self-absorbed in the construction of their name. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a very important factor of the movement. But I wanted to have a storyboard for a different audience other than the graffiti writers, as we were calling ourselves writers, because we were writing. Um, I wanted to create a new conversation that, wow, this phenomenon is happening underneath our feet and sometimes right bluntly right in our faces, uh, but there's a voice here that is yearning uh, to show some kind of urgent message. And I felt that those trains in the yards, just, you know, the, the, the sounds that they created as, you know, compressors are running and electrical motors. Are, it's just a, a, an incredible boiler room studio environment. Sounded, sounded like a symphony. Oh, sure. It sure definitely was a mechanical sympathy, a symphony and, and that of, you know, my love for trains and uh, I've always been a lo- in love with cranes, trains and, uh, the pain of it all, you know. <laughs> so the subways were very special to me and I, I respected them as such because I felt that if I went into that environment, I respected that environment and I was very disciplined, mind you. And at that time, feeling invincible because of that, that the trains will return the favor. And they did. And my, my, the way I look at it, those trains were, they came alive and they had a whole different kinetic energy to them, whole different, uh, presence. And, uh, and, and when they moved, the characters, caricatures, whoever, whatever he was painting came to life, including the letters. So it was really beautiful to see. I mean, I, I remember, I didn't mean to cut into what you were saying, but I remember standing on a platform and watching those trains come in or those trains leaving. And you really had a feeling of so, kind of a sort of cinemascope. Um, you were seeing this, this, um, uh, just this long, incredibly wonderful dynamic um, drawing um, just keep moving. And it was, I just always thought it was miraculous. I was very much in the minority, as you know, uh, but it, um, it was incredibly moving and a real document of that time and place. How old were you? When I first started painting trains, uh, my first train that I painted, I was 14 years old, 1970. Uh, where did your folks think you were? My folks knew, uh, for the for the most part, in the very, very uh, beginning, it was a little secretive thing that, you know, people did uh, amongst themselves in the neighborhood. Um, I didn't uh, graduate to the subway scene that quick. It was that spring of 74, 
that I started on the streets and I thought that for some in some miraculous way that the work was kind of like, um, you know, you, you ground your teeth on the streets and you made one painting on a train and that was it. That was your end. Uh, that was the end of the discussion. You was from there on famous. And uh, at 14 years old, I learned that you had to do it multiple hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times. And that was the scariest uh, concept to me because I have to re- negotiate myself into this scene, redo everything. And my parents eventually found out. Now, one thing that I was kind of ballsy saying, and I can't even, I can't even imagine my children saying this to me now. Uh, it's a different world back then, as you know, Arnold, right? I mean, the city was kind of like on the fringes, was on the fringes of, uh, you know, just being totally bankrupt. Um, morally bankrupt as well. I said to my my mother in particular, who is my first, I must mention, she was my first support, supporting cast. Because I told her, Mom, um, I promise you, I will do this much more if you try and stop me. So I need your blessings in return. And all she said to me was, just come back to me in one piece. I know you are smart and sharp about whatever you do, and I believe in you. Wow. And plus, you were born in the year of the rat. Rats are survivors. <laughs> well, I have to say, um, you know, God bless your mom um, because she, she, she knew you. She knew you, and that was the key. Um, Last question about this, and then I want to come up to the present. Um, did you have any, who were your sidekicks, if, there were, if that was the right word, at that time? I mean, who among this cast of at least hundreds, um, uh, who was closest to you at that moment? Well, I was pretty much, uh, at the very beginning, I was pretty much of a loner because I was the only out of my immediate neighborhood that actually ventured into the trains. Everyone in my neighborhood were kind of like recreational graffiti writers where they did it for the moment. Um, I wanted to follow suit and really follow in the steps of people like Cliff 159, a young gentleman from Harlem and Blade, uh, another uh, gentleman from the South, from the North Bronx. And I wanted to paint in the fashion that they were. They just gave me the, the blueprints uh, by witnessing their paintings uh, time and time again. Um, and I, I felt that my palette was that large, 50 feet by eight feet high and sometimes 100 feet uh, by eight feet high. Um, so I was pretty much a loner for the first few years. I mean, the first year or so, but I quickly, um, kind of tantalized the attention of a group of painters that came from interesting checkered backgrounds. And they were all older than I, uh, and they went by the name of the fabulous five. And I thought that what a great name. The Fabulous Five. I'm painting on the number five, IRT, Lexington Avenue. For some reason, that's my favorite number. 
But for some reason, the IRT number five felt like a friend in the tunnel, in the dark. If you, if you could just picture walking into a tunnel and just seeing the bright four red headlights of a train that's parked in the bowels of that darkness, but you see the number five, it's just like, it's a dream. It's like a nightmare and a dream, wow. good dream at, at all at once. And then you hear the, it's just alive. It's energetic. It's full of accomplishment. It's full of uh, achievements in the future. And I felt, wow, the fabulous five. It just sounds so great. Now these guys came, so by funny enough, ironically, they all came from the five boroughs. So they, you know, <laughs> on the prize ones from Manhattan, myself, Slave from Brooklyn, Doc from Staten Island, you know, like it was just like a perfect mending, a quintet, a really crazy, out of their mind guys, all ex-gang members except for Slave and myself, real gangs from the streets of New York in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, but they were painters. And I just felt to this day, they're still the, we're a band of brothers. We're still in touch with each other. They're still as crazy as ever. Um, and they're very much, uh, amazed that I kept the torch burning because uh, just a few years after we stopped painting as a group, I kept painting. And that was a very lonely time because I had a, I had acquired this friendship and this camaraderie, you know, like this group of guys. I thought we were going to paint for the rest of our lives because really, aside from thinking that the Vietnam War was a passage or rites of passage for a young man and that everyone that was male had to go through a process called the Vietnam War. That's how riveting that was to me. I thought that we, or at least I, would be painting on subways for the rest of my life. That's teenage life for you. So uh, by incidence, circumstance, happenstance, whatever you want to call it, going back to those walls, that wall, the Howard the Duck mural, is what basically gave me the boot out of the system that I'm very much romantically, you know, it's just romantic to me, that time in the darkness. Talk about isolation in this current time. There was a sense of isolation for myself back then. And you had to be very, um, again, very uh, practical and uh, very uh, uh, disciplined of everything you did. Because my fear was to not get caught or even get killed. I never thought I would get killed, obviously, because I figured, well, if I operate in a certain way. And you made a promise to your mother, too. A promise to my mother, which I never broke. But. I never wanted to come out of the subway yards with the law on my back and know that one of my trains, one of my masterpieces was unfinished. It was the ultimate. It's like losing your lines in front of the live audience on Broadway. It is a complete disaster. Um, so I made sure that every time I went, I, it was a, I can write a, and I'm writing a book about it, but the chapter of how I operated in the subways is many chapters thick. Just to, to, and people have told me when I've told a few of the stories, it's not letting everything out of the box yet, 
like they say, don't give away the ending, right? Right. <laughs> um, people have said, mainly graffiti writers, uh, that know the system, know certain workings in the system, have said, I've never met or heard stories, met a person like you, or heard stories on how you operate. I said, well, just think of it. I was painting 50-foot-long murals, 50-foot by 8-foot high, at least three times an a week. You need to be very disciplined to completely succeed at that, bypass the law, municipalities, and get back home in one piece, and then switch back to a civilian role of a young man. But when you're in the yards, you're the ninja. You're the Spider-Man. You're the operative that works in a very invincible way. So the Fab Five, as crazy as they were, uh, bring back a lot of vivid, great memories. But um, we had a great run. Um, funny enough, the, the Beatles were called the Fab Five before they were the four, right? But um, we we had we have great stories together. And uh, and when I uh, ended on the trains again on my own, I then um, exhibiting in major galleries. It was it was a turning point for me that okay, the walls had been done, but what am I doing here? Why is it that this is still sincere and dear to me um, when I have this open palette of the world uh, and a whole new audience and a whole new conversation? So. Well, I have to say, um, I've been eager to read your book. But I think you've now got a couple of thousand people who are watching this um, equally uh, engaged in this. So uh, you have to get back to business. And in addition to working on the paintings, Lee, you have to you have to get back to that book um, because I think this is also the right time and place to have that book come out because that period of time um, becoming more and more important. And um, I can't wait for it. Um, and I'm really grateful. I, I'm just so uh, just wrapped by your stories. Um, and you know how much I've been an advocate for artists of that period. Um, so this has been great. I can't thank you enough. And um, um, we'll have to figure out a way how to announce this, uh, the arrival of this book. So everyone who's tuned in um, to watch this episode will be online uh, to buy it. Uh, Lee, thank you. Take care. Go to work. And I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. And by the way, coffee mug has a, a great smoothie in it. It's vanilla ice cream, bananas, strawberries, and blueberries. It's one of my favorite waker uppers. That's why you're so healthy. Okay. <laughs> I got it. Thanks again. Really great to see you. Same. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye-bye.
That was my friend, artist Lee Quinones. I hope you will join me for my next episode of Art Matters at Home when artist Jennifer Rubel will be with us.